For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits, not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's Back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hey friends, welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. If you don't know who I am, my name is Noah. I'm the podcast producer and Tim asked me to jump on this week and to introduce this episode for you while he's on baby leave. If you're following along with our community and what's going on behind the scenes on our social media accounts, you'll know that Tim and Sarah are about to have a baby right now and probably by the time that this episode airs, there will be a new baby in the Whitaker house. So if you want more updates on that, go ahead and check our social media out over the next couple weeks. But I've got a really great conversation for you here today between Tim and Thomas J. Millay. Thomas J. Millay is a senior research fellow at the Hong Kierkegaard Library of St. Olaf College, and he just recently published a new book called Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism, a contemporary reinterpretation of the attack upon Christendom. This episode asks some really important questions like, what is nationalism? What is Christian nationalism? What does it practically look like for us day to day to seek after justice in our world, to correct systems of oppression? Dr. Millay also talks about what Kierkegaard has to say about engaging the idea of suffering in a faith context. There's so much in this episode. There's so much for me to think about over the next week and hopefully for you too. If you like the work that we do, if the New Evangelicals has a positive impact on you week to week, a really simple way that you can support us is to just leave a review of this podcast in whatever platform you listen to it on. It helps a lot in the back-end weird algorithms that none of us really understand, but it makes a big difference. Another way that you can support us is financially. There's more information in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Everything the New Evangelicals creates is free and accessible to everyone. There's no paywall. There's no subscription for extra features. And so the support of the community is really what allows us to continue to be able to do this work. Friends, I really can't wait for you to hear this episode. It's a great conversation, and I'll talk to you next week. Well, Tom, I can tell just from our our pre-recording banter, you know, the the wild behind the scenes that we do here. Uh, you and I are going to get along just great on on this interview. So, thanks so much for making time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Yes, yeah, it's great to be on. There, you've had a lot of amazing people on, so I'm honored. Well, you're thanks. one of the few people who told me, "Hey, I've actually like binged a lot of your episodes before I came on." I'm like, I'm honored you would even spend that much time listening to me ramble um, and listen to guests, you know, tell me how wrong I am on so many issues. So thank you, I appreciate <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> no, I've learned a lot. It's it's great. Yeah, it's it's a great thing that you're doing. I think thanks a lot of time and and uh, reflection and. So we appreciate what you've given us. So thank you. <laughs> I, honestly, I, I've been honored to have um, such amazing guests, people who are willing to come on the show and talk about all kinds of stuff. So I, I'm, whenever I get someone like a Russell Moore or, or David Gushy or Jamar Tisby, I'm just like, what are you doing on my show? Like, do you know who I am? You know, like, I'm a little <laughs> ant on, on, on the pile here. But they're always so gracious, so I appreciate that. But we're not here to talk about them because they, people can go listen to those episodes if they're interested. We're here to talk about you and your new book that I think is not out as of this recording just yet, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, called Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism, um, a contemporary reinterpretation of the attack upon Christendom. This will be very interesting because we did do an intro to Kierkegaard on the podcast with Aaron Simmons. I, right. I called it Who the F is Kierkegaard? A little, yes, you know, yes. little clickbaity on purpose there, right? <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed the very little, admittedly, I know of Kierkegaard, and I'm interested to hear about this book. Before we do that, we love hearing the story of our guests. So who are you, Tom? How did you grow up? And why did you end up writing a book called Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism? Yes. Oh, man. Well, uh, I, I grew up Catholic until I was 12. 
but from years 12 to 18, those important middle school and high school years, I was a dedicated evangelical Christian. <laughs> so I do share a fair amount with you and with your audience being in those formative years. And yes. after that, I think what really um, sort of drew me out of evangelical Christianity was honestly uh, go going to college and learning and starting to think. I did a religion degree, started, and it's funny, you talk about deconstruction a lot, and yeah. honestly, a lot of the time, a uh, a synonym for it could be just like a thinking Christian. <laughs> I, feel like, I know. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's what I became, I think, after going to college. And then I went to seminary. Then I uh, got a doctoral degree at Baylor. And that was a great place. Very Baylor's a very supportive environment for religion PhD students and so that's where I got my degree, and I taught there for a year uh, after graduating uh, with a PhD in theology. And then um, I've been past, uh, a pastor for almost the last two years now after teaching for a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it, and you haven't had too many pastors on, I don't think. So. I mean, <laughs> I, I should probably put like a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. Like he is a pastor, <laughs> but not the kind of pastor that you think. What year were you at Baylor? Because I have a, a friend who graduated from there with his PhD about two years ago now, Paul Guttaker. So I'm curious oh, to yes. know. Yes, I know Paul. Yes, a history. Uh, history yes. Student. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I graduated 2019. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it was right around, I think Paul was either my class or right after me. I, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Him and I are, we go back to when we were pretty much, you know, um, age 10 through 12. And uh, I can tell you some stories about Paul offline, you know, to kind of humble him a little bit. You know, okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Paul's, Paul's a great friend. I know his wife very well, and they're great people. They actually, when we were in Texas visiting them, uh, they were um, going to an Anglican church at the time. And so we were part of their service for the first time. That was our first ever, you know, uh, foray into an Anglican type of, of service. And my wife and I just, mm. man, we just loved it. It was just so yeah. beautiful. Um, yeah. So, yeah. okay, so you're currently a pastor. Wow. Yeah. How, how's that going? I'm kind of curious. And, <laughs> <laughs> Are you? Is it denomination Anglican? Like, like what what, yeah. what? what kind of church is it? I know I'm one of those rare people who did not rare evangelicals who did not become Anglican or Episcopal <laughs> after <laughs> after shifting away. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm part of the Disciples of Christ, which is like it's a mainline denomination. It, it used to be very. Uh, I know it used to be um, sort of more well known than it is. It was kind of the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Disciples were kind of like the big four. Uh, the big four Protestant denominations for a while in America. And uh, it still is really significant denomination in some parts of America. So more so in the South and the Midwest than in other places. Yeah. Um, and I really love, I love being a disciple because it's like, it is similar to uh, being Episcopalian or Anglican in a lot of ways because it's liturgical uh, and we follow the church year. We use the liturgy and, do confession and things like that during service. We take uh, communion every Sunday, a lot of the things. Um, but I would say it's it's a more, usually more down to earth culture than Episcopalians. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Not to insult them too much, you know, but uh, uh, it's like uh, Harawas at Duke, you know, he, he used to say, I, that's where I got my MDiv. And he would say that they left no pretension unused, <laughs> the Episcopalians. <laughs> the disciples is a very different sort of salt of the earth type of style, uh, usually. Yeah, I'm and looking at their some, website, there's, yeah. There's some that I'm sure you know, some disciples that you know, like Reverend Barber is a disciple, and he's actually in the same city as, as I am, uh, okay. William Barber, yeah. Okay, um, so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm taking a look right now on their website. I mean, they, they, they own disciples.org, so kudos to yeah. them. That, that's a powerful <laughs> URL to have, you know. So. <laughs> we are the disciples. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is now, I think, in our cultural context, you know, uh, oh, yeah, I'm part of the Disciples of Christ denomination. It's like, is that a cult? It sounds kind of culty yeah. in our modern so. context, obviously, you know? And it's just like, wait, I, are you guys legit? Like, are, are you registered legally? You know? so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's very, like, uh, it, it's very confusing, too, because it's part of the Stone Campbell movement, which gave birth to a bunch of other churches. So, like, you've heard of, like, Churches of Christ acapella. The no who don't use instruments. No. Oh, oh well, I, I, I've encountered people like that, but not with that official yes. title. 
Yes, yes. Well, that's where they come from. It's from the same movement. They just sort of branched off in a very different uh, direction than disciples. Disciples are very sort of like practical, mission-oriented folks, uh, very into service, basically, is what is the hallmark of our denomination, at least supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, um, well, so that, I feel that. <laughs> that yeah, that's, that's sort of... Uh, and so, yeah, if you know something about Reverend Barber, then uh, he's a good representation of emphasis on social justice and service and practicality when it comes to the Christian life. And it sort of says theoretical debates are important, but they're really kind of take a background in the church to the the action side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, and we're going to get into your book in a minute, I promise. We're, we're, we're working our way there, because I want to dive into Kierkegaard in the book. But it is interesting, because as I'm on this journey, growing up now, you know, 30-something years in evangelical culture, and really stepping outside of it, really for the first time in my life— I'm only about maybe eight months into the journey. I am thinking more and more like, listen, I I enjoy these theological discussions. I enjoy the books. You know, I, I enjoy thinking about some of these things. But like, if people are still oppressed, like we have bigger fish to fry, right? Like, like, like at what point does the work we're uh, we're talking about become some kind of action? Now, even me with new evangelicals, I struggle with that. I think internally, like, okay, great, we're posting content. We are helping people in that sense. But like, when do we start getting like our feet more on the ground? Like, actually campaigning to end the death penalty, things like that. So you know, I I, I do think about that, and I, I think a lot of people. Um, out there who listen to the to, to the show probably think about this as well. Like, okay, if I hear one more one more you know point about why Calvinism or Arminianism or this, like, okay, that's fine. But like, can we just start feeding people and like looking at the systemic issues that are keeping people poor in the richest country in America without being called a socialist or a Marxist? I think a lot of us are kind of in those spaces right now, to be yeah. honest with you, at least mentally, which kind of feeds the purpose. But you you get the point, you know? Yeah, yeah, so. I do, I do get the point, and, and I think it's. It's, um, I think the practical side of things come first so often. I think for you, the practical sort of engaged in daily life thing was you experience hurt and harm in your practical mm. everyday life. And oh. then that causes sort of theoretical reflection, right? Yeah, <laughs> On, yeah. so, so I think that's often the case for us. Like that's I, good point. I, I, I try to, to, in, this is something that is actually in the book as well. <laughs> so we, we can that can be a, a sort of window into the book if you if you right. want it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me enter the book and then and then we'll kind of hop into it. So the book is called yeah. Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism. Uh, the book is coming out soon. When does the book book actually do out? Well, it came out. So it came out mid December, but um, it it is in a hardcover edition, which okay. is really sort of geared towards libraries. The price is geared towards libraries. <laughs> so hopefully later this year, usually about. Um, uh, six to eight months after the hardcover comes out, this publisher will publish a paperback that would be actually affordable. <laughs> um, so it really is like, unless you're connected to a library or you want to buy like the electronic version, it's not really affordable book. It, yeah. it, is it out on, on audiobook? Is it, out, is it available for audio? Uh, no, no, it's not. So hopefully this will be the audiobook version of it. Us Perfect. Talking, okay. talking <laughs> Chapter one. You know, here we go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead and, and let's talk about the book. Why did you want to write it, and and what's the title mean? And then we'll kind of get into some of your finer yes. points. Oh, good, good. Well, um, so like you mentioned before, this is you've talked about Kierkegaard before um, on your show, and you've had Stephen Backhouse, who's talked about Christian nationalism, and he's <laughs> yes. actually the expert on Kierkegaard and nationalism. Um, and uh, so. I feel like you're set up in a good place to to where our conversation is going. And my book is really focused, it is more focused on what to do about nationalism, because I feel like um, Backhouse is particularly good on defining nationalism. Like, what mm. is it? And he, that's what he talked about during your show as well. Like, how do we define yeah. nationalism? Right. What is the sort of narrative that sustains it? Um, and my my book is really sort of trying to get at through Kierkegaard what are the practical ways that we approach getting ourselves out of nationalism because it is it's not just a uh it's not just how you vote it's not just allegiance in that way it does have to do with um a lot of practical things as well i mean the most most recent practical thing for me has been um 
trying to take some sort of stand against, I think you could call it kind of vaccine nationalism, that mm -hmm. we have really focused our vaccine effort on America, you know, and trying mm. to get our country vaccinated, uh, which has led to uh, these variants being so popular or, or spreading. And so uh, it's yet another case of how sort of our own nationalism, our own focus on our own nation and its own uh, health, supposedly, and greatness, even though that hasn't itself worked too well. But that focus has has uh, sort of harmed us in the end, harmed America in the end, um, because uh, it, it doesn't actually work to focus on your own country like that when it comes to a pandemic. So that's, that's one example of um, sort of how can we get outside of that and then um, uh, I guess I have a more broad understanding of nationalism maybe than uh, than some other folks because it, to yes. me it's also like economy, uh, like uh, the way we get our consumer goods uh, evidences nationalism. So we use the power of our country to get our goods more cheaply and uh, perpetuate a consumeristic lifestyle. That is also part of nationalism, I think. So, All right, yeah. Let, yeah. Let, let me stop you right there. Cause I'm, and I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you said this because one of the questions I, I wrote down was, the book doesn't say Christian nationalism, it just says new nationalism, right? Yeah. So, yes. so help us flesh this out because yes. obviously we talk about Christian nationalism a lot on the podcast yeah. and, and on our social media channels, but yeah. how are you using this term, either new nationalism or nationalism? Maybe yeah. where's the separation and where's the overlap yeah. in the Venn diagram? So, yes. So, you know, all right. I think that's great because, it, uh, it, yeah, it gets at, I really do have an interpretation of what is the core of nationalism. Right. And I think it doesn't really, it, it sort of uh, has a, a core essence to it, which then different ideologies use it for whatever. Uh, whatever ideology you want can be placed on top of it. It's just mm. uh, to perpetuate this core. So my interpretation of nationalism is that it's all about self-assertion. It's about uh, uh, the assertion of oneself over others. Uh, and you can do that in your own personal life, but you can also support it as a country, supporting the uh, goodness, the flourishing, you could even say, of your own country <laughs> by suppressing other countries. That's what nationalism is all about. And so for me, it that that can refer to America with a Christian nationalist variety, or it can refer to India with, you know, the, the Hindutva ideology that's there. That's my other sort of, that's my main non-Christian example in the book, uh, is India in the suppression of Muslims, suppression of Christians there that we saw recently in New York Times. Right. Uh, so that that I think it's the same sort of phenomenon at the core. It's the self-assertion, especially of the dominant culture of the country, trying to uh, assert its cultural normativity and to say we are the ones in charge. Yeah. Okay, I, I like this because I think it's just really important for our audience to get a bigger perspective than our own, right? So what I hear you saying, and tell me where I'm wrong on this, is that nationalism is simply when a dominant power group in a country asserts itself and therefore the nation at the expense of either others inside the nation or outside the nation. Is that what we're talking yeah. about here? Exactly. So, so yeah. really, if that is the case, nationalism, yes, we experience it in America in a very specific way, but that doesn't mean that, that other countries don't have these tendencies as well. Is that also correct? Yes, it is. And it's, it also explains why, uh, why, the Christian, the Christianity within Christian nationalism is so thin, so threadbare. Yeah, uh, doesn't have any actual content to it, which is a point that Perry and Whitehead make in their yes. "Taking Back America for God." It, it's sort of, uh, you know, it uses Christian as a label, but that label doesn't really mean anything other than kind of the assertion of white, usually male, heteronormative cultural power. That's what the word Christian means, rather than something filled with like the content of the life of Jesus, you know? Okay, <laughs> I, I think this might be maybe the clearest we, we've ever gotten on nationalism versus Christian nationalism. I think you just really explained it well. So audience, I recommend going back and listening one more time to that like 30 second bite, because here's the thing, right? We're always trying to understand 
like you're, you're always trying to figure out the fishbowl that you're swimming in, right? So that's what we're trying to do. How, where do we have this? Why is there so much what we call Christian nationalism? But but really, the engine that, that we're seeing, right, is nationalism, and the skin on top happens mm-hmm. to be a very thin Christian layer. I kind yeah. of think about it like, and I'm not sure how, how, how techie you are, but, you know, with, like, the Android operating system, there's the foundational operating system, then there's the skin that, like, Samsung will put over that operating system, right? Mm-hmm. So I kind of picture nationalism being like the Android OS operating system and this the particular skin that we've experienced nationalism in has a Christian nationalist skin over top of it but the mm-hmm. root is 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 actually much deeper than that and has been expressed differently throughout the you know the the history of the world really we're just experiencing it in a very unique flavor how am i doing yes exactly i couldn't have said it better myself you i'll write your next book for you there you go <laughs> I'll just put that recording. I'll voice to text it right. There's the your book. audiobook right there. <laughs> that's right. No, that's great. Uh, and, okay, uh, that's helpful. It does. Uh, so that if that understanding of naturalism then affects how I think we need to actually approach kind of rooting it out of our lives, uh, right? And, and getting right. rid of it because for me, so what what I am especially attentive to in Kierkegaard is. Yeah the ascetic and renunciative aspects of his interpretation of Christianity. So uh, I, I highlight some things that are not usually highlighted about Kierkegaard, like he embraced poverty. Mm. He embraced a kind of obedience uh, to uh, a, call, a calling, a vocation, and he embraced singleness. Uh, so chastity, you could call that. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll say one more word about the chastity bit. So Kierkegaard, I can't remember if Simmons talked, I think he mentioned this briefly. So he breaks off his engagement, right, to uh, Regine Olsen is, was his fiance. He breaks off an engagement to her. But I think it's often sort of narrowed to they had this, you know, uh, passionate romance and then it broke off because Kierkegaard wanted to be a writer. He wanted to devote more time, et cetera. But I think we should really understand it as, a rejection of the bourgeois comfortable lifestyle that was available to him. Like if he mm. had married this woman, they would have had a family. He probably would have taken a pastorate uh, yeah. to make money to support them. And he would have had, he would have fit in with his society. He would have had a comfortable, uh, secure life where he was well-respected. And instead, he had this crazy life as a writer, was completely misunderstood by everyone, was mocked by people out on the street, Mm. uh, and died kind of very much uh, as as an outcast. And that's so him being single in that way uh, is, is... very much is it's not just sort of choosing to be a writer it's choosing to reject his society that's mm. so it's that renunciative aspect you could also call it ascetic i mean so i i use that lens of poverty chastity and obedience because that's the typical monastic virtues right so that's uh mm. that's um where that's how Kierkegaard is resisting the nationalism of his day, I think, not just on a theoretical level. And Backhouse is great on the theoretical level of mm. Kierkegaard's resistance to nationalism. But I'm really talking more about the practical. How did he live it out? How did he live out that rejection of uh, of the his own nation, which was very embroiled in, in nationalism during his time? So, Which is kind of comforting to know that, you know, in one sense, there, what, what we're seeing in our own context isn't new, even though it might be new for us or, or the way it is, it, it's expressed with technology is new, but the same principles are still going, but also kind of discouraging that, you know, the principles are still going. You know, and, if, and if Kierkegaard couldn't stop it, like what makes you think that I can do anything to stop it, so to speak? So one yeah. follow-up question, and then I, then I want to get into to some of the practical stuff. Why is why do you call why is your sub um sorry why is the title um Kierkegaard and a new nationalism mm-hmm. instead of just mm-hmm. nationalism? Yes. So cast your mind back to a time where people talked about the alt right all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, <I'm> there. <laughs> you know, when I when I was writing this book, people were talking about that a lot. And yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think it's still relevant. So. The person I focus in on the book is Richard Spencer. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. He was sort of kind of behind that label in a lot of ways. Um, Unite the Right Rally, not, I think, too, is him, if, yeah. I, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so he, um, 
I don't want to say he's like a genius or something like that. I don't think he's a genius or, you know, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to focus on him like this uh, because I don't want to give him more credit than he's due. Yeah. But um, I, I do think he reveals something really interesting. So he's actually my window into talking about nationalism as self-assertion, that that's what the basic essence of it is. Because he, the new nationalism that he represents, I think, is this version of nationalism where, uh, well, well, I'll just talk about it in terms of what he does, how he's challenged, and then how he responds. So what he does a lot of times is spin this pseudo-historical narrative of how great uh, white European culture has been. And like, that's our cultural heritage, so we need to you know, preserve it. And then, you know, someone will come up to him and, and say, well, you know, that's complete BS because like, the, European culture has always been diverse. It's always had multiple cultures within it uh, of different, you know, ethnicities. And right. basically your whole historical narrative is nonsense. And right. what he does to that is interesting and rel revelatory to me because he, he, will, he won't say, he won't try to dispute your facts or yep. your history. What he'll say is, okay, what you're saying might be true, but we all need a mythology to empower us. <laughs> that, that's his response. We all wow. need a mythology to empower us. So he sort of wow. reveals that, okay, just put whatever on top of this that you want. Really, it's wow. about me, my group's assertion that we want to dominate the world. That's what it's all about. And we'll take whatever historical or religious narratives we can get to aid us in that project. You know, that's that's what it's all about. Yeah. So the new wow. nationalism is that the resurgence of the alt-right and uh, that 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 sort of way of thinking about uh, that way of thinking about nationalism. I suppose just Very also the greater resurgence of nationalism around the world during this time. But yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's very interesting you say that because um, it's in one way, it's like it's a very bold way of saying it, right? Like, hey, I'm just gonna be honest. Like, you could be right, but I don't care. You know, my right. mythology still serves. But also that, but the fact that someone can say that that bluntly and still be widely, you know, accepted in those spaces and really. I don't think people understand how a lot of the right-wing conservative media pulls from that ideology. They just kind of sugarcoat it a little bit differently, but it's mm -hmm. the same idea. They just they they aren't that blunt about it, right? And right. the fact yeah. the fact that 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 that, that is happening in 2022, <laughs> when we mm -hmm. have the most information ever in the history of humankind, right? Mm -hmm. I think should make us like pause for concern about mm -hmm. the times that we're living in. Like maybe they aren't as progressive and as, 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 you know, inclusive as we think that they are when those kinds of things are being propagated and making a lot of money, um, you know, um, in, in, in the public limelight. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Because I mean, it makes sense that it makes money because it, it tells people Really, people in general, at least the, the group that it's speaking to, it tells them what they want to hear right. in a lot of ways. It tells them, you're important, you're significant, you deserve to be on top, you deserve to be a leader and in charge. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that in some ways? It's appealing to these very basic desires, yeah. No, right, that makes a lot of sense. I, I just think it's just interesting hearing that connection and kind of putting two and two together. So I think a lot of us hear hints of things like that, but, but they don't use the term assertion or you know dominant group. They just say American exceptionalism or you know freedom <laughs> or religious freedom now, I hear a lot, you know, et cetera. So very interesting. <laughs> so let's get back to the book. So you mentioned how your, your book focuses on on a lot of the practical, which I love to hear, because I think a lot of people are like, okay, as I'm discovering what nationalism and Christian nationalism and the overlaps, you know, how, what do I do? Do I renounce this, this, you know, corporate, corporatist system that I'm in and like live on the streets, but I have a family. What do I do? So like, mm -hmm. so how do you address some of that in the book? Yes. Well, I, that, that is, I think the most important question, and it's not one that can be fully answered. So yeah. the, the first thing, the one of the reasons why Kierkegaard is so significant in thinking through this is he was very aware of his own limitations in renunciation. So he was always trying to figure out how to renounce his society. He didn't figure out how to do it right away. It mm. took time over the course of his life to arrive at exactly what he was going to do at the end of his life, which was yeah. maybe his most significant renunciation. At the end of his life, refusing communion, things like that, uh, telling people not to go to church, 
so he he's sort we'll of into that in a few minutes. Been built in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, sounds um, like my kind of guy. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes beyond that. So, like, he, right. the uh, the attack literature that I'm focusing on is famous because he calls pastors cannibals that live off the death of Christ. He says the only difference between the church and the theater is that the theater is honest about what it is. <laughs> and, know, he, and he tells people not to go to church. <laughs> Tom, I- Sail into summer in New Jersey, where sea breezes drift along iconic sunny shores, stroll boardwalks, or soar high on the rides. Take time out to breathe in the great outdoors. Treat yourself, shop, dine, dive into history, the arts and culture from dazzling winning cities to charming towns in the countryside find it all at visitnj.org i i i i'm not kidding you last week we did a real response like a, like an instagram real response to uh to hillsong and them having their their like uh club camp you know with no masks on it during a lockdown and the title of the video is Hillsong, the entertainment company. And I make the point that, yeah. like, you know, Hillsong is really an entertainment company and they're just yeah. hiding as, you know, a church. And then my, yeah. I'm just, without even knowing it, channeling my inner Kierkegaard here. You know? <laughs> You're exactly right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and he, yeah. That kind of stuff just drove him crazy, which is, yeah, why he was so, uh, why he attacked his society so forcefully at the end of his life. Wow. So I think. What, what the wisdom he has to give us is that, yeah, it, it, it's not going to help people. It's not going to help anybody for you to, uh, you know, sell, sell your home and, and go live on the street. Like that's not, that's not, you know, if you're, if the concern of your heart is someone uh, who has spent the last 12 years of their life stitching the same stitch on a t-shirt right. uh, that get, then gets mailed to the wealthier countries to sell. Right, right. Uh, you're, you're selling your house not going to do much about mm. it, anything about that. So you really have to be, <laughs> you, yeah, you have to be doing something that addresses the real suffering of the world, the real hurt of the world. Uh, and it's not, yeah, it's it's not that simple solution, I don't well, think. And I, I think, yeah. too, a lot of people, like, I, I think a very common attack I hear in the circles I'm in from people who don't like, either people like me or the work that we do, so say, well, why don't you just start being that change that, that, you're, that, that you're always complaining about? You know, like, why don't you change the church from the inside out? You know, I got kicked out of my church. They don't know that. But, you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, it's a very common attack of, like, well, you're just hypocritical because it's, it's the classic Al Gore preaches against climate change while flying in the jet, right? People People are like, look, Al Gore's a hypocrite because he's, he's doing this. So, mm-hmm. like, like, how do you? I mean, do you talk about that in the book at all? Have Have you thought about, thought about that personally? What do we do with that? Because it's very frustrating, yeah. you know. Because I'm trying, I'm trying. Okay, like, that's it's, right. It's, it's, it's the air I breathe. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, the first delusion you have to get rid of is that you can perfectly live this out. It's mm. impossible in America to do that. So you have to take. You have to gradually increase your renunciation in ways that you perceive to be significant. That's, that's what I think. You can't figure out how to do everything right away. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very much small changes within your life that accumulate to greater and greater uh, sort of disciplined renunciation of your society uh, in the way it's entangled. So, I mean, rejection of consumerism is one of those things. Like, it, if there were not such a hunger for consumer goods in America, that would cause some of the suffering that's in the world to give those things to America to dissipate. Uh, So I think that is one of the aspects. And then changing your consumer habits to, uh, uh, to things that are made more locally and oftentimes more justly with less transportation. I mean, that, that seems like uh, a try answer because it is it's so well known now as, as a cultural habit. But what I want to return is the significance to that in its rejection of the global economy. Um, mm. That's that's a that and I don't think that's a complete solution either. None of these things are a complete solution. Mm. So I think you have to uh, continue to strive, which is one of Kierkegaard's main themes. I, uh, Aaron Simmons he he mentioned this, but the theme of Kierkegaard being 
I don't consider myself a Christian, but I hope someday to become one. That's the theme. Yes. Of okay. yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. it's this continual striving, which to me, rec- he, he very much perceives the evil of the world. And uh, he perceives how he's been put at the center of that. Denmark is huge colonial power in the 19th century. Their comfort that they had in their society is completely dependent on oppression of all sorts of countries all over the world. Mm. Uh, even though they're this tiny little country, right? right? They had right. a huge shipping fleet, uh, very yeah, involved wow. in slave trade. There was just, there was a book um, published in Danish in 2017, a five volume history of colonialism in Denmark. Wow. And it, yeah, I mean, it's very, it takes five volumes to capture wow. all the bad stuff that they did. <laughs> wow, that is something. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's not it's not good. So he recognized how he was how if he had accepted the comfortable life, the secure life that was given to him, and not tried to renounce it, he would have been accepting the evil that runs the world, basically. So how do you work yourself out? From the evil that runs the world, <laughs> I think that's that's the question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. This this the response that you're a hypocrite. You should just respond to that. Well, of course I am. We all are. You know, <laughs> you're so, right. Like, just own it. I'm trying to figure out how to how to live this. It, it's not something. It's not one of these uh, sort of moral issues. that's so easy. Of like, okay, don't drink or smoke or whatever. Like that's the, those are easy compared to these issues, right? Well, and not I, that I'm I, saying that those are bad. I'm just no, saying. right, right. No, I, I yeah. totally get what you're saying, and I, you know, I, I think that this is a good moment for us to mention that, like, this work that that we're trying to do, right? That we're trying to figure out how do we live more justly? How do we live more, um, you know, uh, um, not at the expense of our neighbor? This is like, this is real life work. I mean, this is, this is big stuff. You know, the fact that, that even, you know, academics such as, such as yourself and others come on the show to talk about this to people like me who are not academic, uh, I think is important because, you know, the, the audience should recognize that like, this is, this is like the thought of the future, hopefully, you know, hopefully we're doing work that is laying down the groundwork for hopefully one day real massive change. Even if our changes are little small drops that start accumulating over time. You know, I think about like, like someone like, like Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Obviously he, he, he a lot of his dream was not realized when, 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 when he was martyred, when he was you know uh, killed. Um, but because of the work that he did, he helped lay down the foundation for some of the progression that we've seen and continues to hopefully push in that direction. So I, I think that that's important. Because you're right, we're not talking about how to live a better life, you know, better habits of the mind, or like you know how to make more money. We're talking about like how do we renounce the culture we're in, mm-hmm. including yeah. the, including for a lot of us the Christian culture we're in, right? Mm-hmm. Where where so many of our own friends and colleagues think that we're we're Kierkegaard, that we're crazy because mm-hmm. we said no, I can no longer be a part of the empire and mm-hmm. the evangelical system that is uh, promoting and a part of that same empire. I can't do That's it anymore. Right. That's right. Well, the way Kierkegaard would say that was that what his society promised him was a happy life in this world and a happy life in the other world. It was yeah. saying you can have it all. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And, and I think that is a, a sort of core truth of evangelicalism. You can be happy in this world. You can be happy in the next. You know, totally. both. Both happy. You can do that, I suppose, if you don't look too hard at where everything that sustains your life comes from. <laughs> right. you know, I, I suppose you can do that. You could. You. I could be happy if I didn't, you know, think critically about what's surrounding me. <laughs> well, that is what's so frustrating, Tom. And I, I would love your, your. I would love your perspective and thoughts on, on this next statement because. You know, it, it's kind of like like the Matrix movie, right? Like once you take the pill and you're like, oh no. Like, you know, all of a sudden your eyes are kind of open to that. No, like the bubble we've created has real consequences, not only outside, but sometimes inside the bubble as well. And I think about that one guy in the first Matrix. I forgot his name, but he was the guy who pretty much sold himself back just to go back to living in the Matrix the way things are. You know, (laughs) I understand that temptation. I mean, listen, I don't make a lot of money. We're we're all donation based here. You know, we have two kids and there are days where I'm like, you know, like I wish I could just maybe get a nice job and just work nine to five and and not not look at all the travesties and injustice in the world and just say, well, not my problem. My paycheck still comes in. But like, you know, it, it's tough. It, it can be tough at times to, to be a part of this work. There's no doubt about it for me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is ironic because it reminds me of one of the true things that I think I heard in my evangelical church growing up. 
which one of the pastors said once, and it stuck with me, to be a Christian means to accept, at the very least, a low grade of sadness for the rest of your life. And I think that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. all right, sign and me up. <laughs> that, that's part of the discipline, I think. Yeah, that you you must accept some uh, measure of discouragement and despair and sadness, uh, because except you you can't see the world realistically for the way it is without accepting that to see mm. the world is to have is to feel those things <laughs> you know so yeah. I, I think it is but it is a discipline right that's part of the ascetic nature of of christian what christianity asks us to so yeah. asks us to do yeah so how do, how do you think Kierkegaard would respond to if he was alive today you know a lot of criticism that that i hear often is Oh, like you're so negative. You're always pointing out what's wrong with the church. You're just like a Debbie Downer. You know, there you're. You never talk about about the good the church is doing, etc. You know, how do you think Kierkegaard would, would would respond to those kind of critiques? Because as you're talking about him, I'm like, I love this dude, but let's face it, this guy's like he's not a very happy go lucky kind of guy. You know, so <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Well, that's good. Well, I have some of the same. Uh, reaction against Kierkegaard. So I, I will say I have some reaction against Kierkegaard, though I will say where he's very beneficial, I, I think, is uh, this is the uh, very clear perception of what structures the world, which is evil, you know, and, <laughs> and that you'll never work your way out of that. And, uh, and you're, you're either, um, the one who's perpetuating it, or you're at the receiving end of it. You know? mm, wow! Um, and uh, so he's very clear-sighted about that, and that does uh, when you structure your whole thought around things like that, and then becoming a Christian basically means just sheer suffering, right? So I think that it is a problem to say that uh, there's no pleasure and joy to the Christian life; that it's sheer suffering which Kierkegaard will go to that extreme of saying it's sheer suffering. I think that there are pleasures and joys to the Christian life, but we have to figure out what pleasures are appropriate to the Christian life right. uh, and what are not. Like consumerism is not a pleasure appropriate to the Christian life. Right. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, there, there are ones, friendship, uh, uh, conversation, uh, yeah, reading. <laughs> um, the these are pleasures appropriate to the Christian life. There are many, many others. Um, you know, music. <laughs> you're you're drumming, absolutely. Yeah, um, thank but, you, thank you. But there are there are these. Uh, I think in, in bon this is where I turn more to someone like Bonhoeffer or to other um, Christian figures because Bonhoeffer, who's very committed to Kierkegaard and his way of seeing things, at the same time he's going to say we do need certain joys as a committed Christian community to sustain yeah. ourselves. And so it's a really interesting mixture in, in the book Life Together. It's an interesting mixture of they're facing kind of relentless persecution from the state. And so the overall context of their life is one of suffering and mm. continual threat. Yeah. At the same time, they're trying to create these small, enjoyable pleasures within their own communal life that they, right. that they have. And, and I think that is important. Uh, so, but I don't think you can get it from Kierkegaard. So he he's sort of a a uh, monotone figure in that way. He's all about renunciation and suffering. I think it's very important for us to hear that and to hear that voice. Yeah. But it's not to say it's the only voice that's out there. Um, well, there there is a chapter in the book later on um, about James Cone, uh, and um, yes, this, this I think is really important voice to bring in uh, because he's speaking to a completely different audience and um, he the the reason why he's a really interesting conversation partner for the discussion is because he's all about self-affirmation in a lot of ways he's about black self-affirmation that's a yeah. major theme especially the first four books that he writes um, yeah and so that that makes you sort of contextualize well Kierkegaard is talking about renunciation and embracing suffering because of his social position he is a aristocratic male at the top of his society mm. you know, that's so the task he's given is renunciation asceticism getting rid of what he's been given uh, whereas hmm. James Cone is given a different task in a lot of ways. But this right. is an interesting thing that happens to him, right? So Cone, huh. uh, he's all about 
uh, black self-assertion, black yeah. self-affirmation within American society. Yeah. Uh, he's all about that. And it's, it's both an economic and a cultural embrace of yeah. black creativity. Um, at the same time, this really interesting thing happens to Cone when he uh, starts participating in dialogue with third world theologians is what they called them in, in this era. So this is like the six, late 60s, more so in the 70s and 80s that he really starts getting into this dialogue. And that makes him realize, you know, e even if I'm oppressed within my society in self-affirmation and uh, self-empowerment is an important theme for my writings, still when I turn out to the world and I look at Christians in other places, I realize that I am actually privileged in relation to them. And so yes. while self-affirmation is an important theme within my society, self-denial is an important theme when I relate to other Christians around the world who actually experience more oppression than I do. Yeah. And that works itself out practically in Cone in uh, the financial effort of black churches to support African churches, to support dialogue with Asian churches all over the world, with churches that didn't have as much money to uh, support those connections that were being forged and made. So it is, huh. it is a contextual and situational sort of renunciation, I think. So it's yeah. important. That's really interesting. Um, I've never, I never, I didn't put that together until you said it. And I'm actually, I just read uh, Black Theology and Black Power by James Cone. I just read uh, The Cross and Lynching Tree by James Cone. And I'm actually, right now, as of this recording, I'm going through with Chip Fuller. He's doing uh, James Cone Was Right, a course on that, uh, with Adam Clark, who I'm getting on the show in a couple of weeks here, uh, or I should say Dr. Adam Clark. And um, yeah, I mean, reading Black Theology and Black Power for me, right, as, you know, the, I mean, listen, you and me, we're both white males in America, and we're, we're both Christian of some sort. And, you know, that pretty much puts us, puts us in, like, in, like, the most privileged group to ever exist on the face of the planet. Um, and, you know, I'm reading this by James Cohen, and I'm like, holy shit, like, this book is a punch in the gut. And, and I, 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 one that I needed, you know, like, what a wake-up call to understand, um, you know, why James Cone is fighting for, for, for black power and for liberation. Um, mm -hmm. And anyway, I just said it because it's interesting, but then it's also interesting to hear you say what you said, where it's like, as James Cone developed and, and learned about what he would call third-world theologians, he also realized and kind of practiced what he preached by realizing, that, okay, I'm more privileged than them, so now the, the task in these in this context is maybe more of that renunciation as a, as opposed to fighting for exactly. you know my 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 um my dignity really which is what he, exactly. he was doing yeah. in America so fascinating mm -hmm. I'm glad that I'm glad that that's in your book it looks like it's chapter six some that's perspectives right. yeah. on destruction Kierkegaard cone and third world theology so mm -hmm. that's okay right. yeah. is, is, is that how you end the book pretty much it looks like that then there's yeah. a conclusion um yeah but that's that that's it. The conclusion has to do is important too. I think um, uh, it it gets at how nationalism is articulated within a context of modernity, hmm. and uh, the way I understand modernity is um, has to do with these principles articulated by John Locke, actually, <laughs> where. Um, He's going to say the material interests of the citizens of your country is always the most important principle. That's the foundational principle. And then you can have like a spiritual interest, but that's always secondary or, uh, mm. you know, it, it, it's always after. It, if it contradicts the material interest, then so much for the spiritual interest, you know. Interesting. <laughs> you right. right. Um, what Kierkegaard is saying completely goes against modernity in that sense, because he's saying uh that Denmark is a society which, as much as any society can, really did achieve happiness for a certain small group of citizens in the 19th century. Uh, they achieved it materially and spiritually. They were very assured of their salvation, and they lived very comfortable lives. Uh, and what he's saying is that we, we actually need to get rid of that comfort, and it includes mm. both material and spiritual comfort. So what he's saying is that, like, uh, our people in our country need to live worse lives. That's what he's saying. <laughs> and like, that doesn't make any sense to modern people. Uh, but Kierkegaard sort of recovers that logic in a lot of ways, because he's saying that uh, basically this, this life where you are so happy in a lot of ways is damaging to your soul, to your spirit, uh, and damaging to your relationship to God. 
So it, because he considers that to be more important, he's saying you need to figure out how to make your life worse in some ways. Huh. So that's, that's the same sort of enunciative theme. And that's really, it really is recovering a more ancient and ascetic conception of Christianity where the spiritual is more important than the material good in some way. Not the material good is, you know, not important at all. But if it comes into contradiction, to the spiritual good, then the material good goes by the wayside. So you you got your your you did your dissertation on theology, right? Like in yeah. okay. Uh-huh. So let me ask, let me yeah. ask you this and maybe let's dip our toes here for a second. You know, you mentioned kind of this split between material and, and spiritual. I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, you know, Tim Mackey, those guys, you know, I think that they they do a lot of great work. And from what I'm learning, it seems like, at least in the minds of, of the the, whoever wrote the Bible, the Hebrew authors especially, there really isn't isn't such a, a separation there. You know, like the word mm-hmm. spirit is the word breath. You know, mm-hmm. the, the your your physical breath is evidence of the spirit in you, so to speak, and this yes. kind of idea. Yeah. So do you think like there's some, is the term Gnosticism of just like this separation mm-hmm. of like, you know, God is here but not there. God's God's in the spiritual but not, not in the material. Does that impact some of, of, of this belief system mm. as well? Of like the material and, and spiritual have to be always fighting Fighting for what's more important, as opposed to, well, everything is spiritual, as as the uh, the big heretic Rob Bell would say. You know, uh, you know, everything is spiritual, and everything we do yeah. in the natural is just as sacred as as this um, mental picture we paint of like the spiritual invisible world yeah. that we're trying to deal with. Good, that's a great question because I think some things get confused here because okay. it, he's Kierkegaard is not saying that. The body is bad or materiality is bad mm. um he 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 does not think that what what he thinks is that the forces that rule the material world are bad <laughs> so what he what he, he's not saying the body is bad he's saying colonialism is bad <laughs> and colonialism is the reason why we have such a materially flourishing society <laughs> um, right. material in the sense of we have more goods more stuff mm. we've got coffee we've got right. uh we've got this amusement park that was built by all this labor we and they have one of the first amusement parks in denmark in this era. Uh, okay. uh, they they have all these sugar spices shipped from everywhere that enrich their food um and it, it, it's that lifestyle so i, I don't think um when people say like Gnosticism. I don't think that they are really meaning that, right? They're not meaning uh, this. So I, I have heard Kierkegaard referred to in that way, but I think it's important to distinguish. Yeah, it's it's not that he's saying, um, it, it's not that he's saying the body is bad or sexual desire is bad or anything like that. Mm. It is more of a rejection of his society and the material arrangements that sustain it. Right. And it is that. So like, take uh, his singleness for example. You can have someone who's more traditionally Gnostic in the sense to say, like, the body and its sexual desires are bad, right? right? That's right. not what he's right. saying. What he's saying is that marriage will insert you into a particular place within our society where your whole life will become a, about achieving bourgeois security and comfort right. for your whole life. That's right. what it would be about. Right. Uh, and so that's why he's going to say don't get married at the end right. of his career. That's one right. of his themes. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't think it, it's not Gnostic in that traditional body-hating, material-hating sense. It, okay, that, it's that is helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's recognizing what goes into making the dominant powers in our world dominant, you know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It seems yeah. like maybe it's more of like, what's the cost of what's in front of you? Mm-hmm. Right, yes, like okay, exactly. you know, if these spices, there are the spices bad in and of themselves. No, but when they're at right. the cost of other people and yes. other people's exploitation, yes. <laughs> so, Very well put. Exactly. Okay, so that's yeah. the idea. Okay, that that is helpful. And again, because I, I think about me and my evangelical upbringing, right? It's just kind of like, yeah, sex is 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 inherently bad, so you get married. So it's like, okay, is that what Kierkegaard's <laughs> talking about, or like, like how? Because we, you know, you you always default to your own worldview and kind of how how what you you only know what you know right so i think a lot of us are like wait i'm I'm hearing certain words like help me out here (laughs) (laughs) so that that makes a lot of sense i appreciate you clarifying that perspective 
Um, one last question for you for this conversation. Again, you know, Tom, I just want to say thank you for making the time to come on on, on the show and talk. Um, it's always such an honor to have such brilliant minds, you know, engage and just talk to the community because so many of us are we're really trying. You know, you've heard me use the analogy before. We're really coming out of that basement of evangelicalism, right? And we're like, okay, now we're in the house of Christian thought. Like, where do we even start? It turns out this house is way bigger than we ever thought, and and we were in the real moldy part of the basement, and now we're coming out of it, right? So I'm just saying yeah. for a lot of us, that, that's kind of where we're at. And so mm-hmm. whenever we get people on who are able to just kind of blow some of those categories and open up new doors and kind of give us a small tour of like, okay, here's the room you're in. It's connected to Christian thought in a whole different way. It, it's helpful. So thank you for doing that. My question, my last question is kind of a curveball. All right. So so buckle Great. up here. I'm, I'm kind okay. of curious. So we're talking about, you know, renunciation and this idea of, hey, how in America do we um, – in a way, withdraw from the systems that are are, are that, that we benefit from benefit from at the cost of someone else's exploitation, right? Okay, I get that. But I have kids. You have a kid, right? Mm-hmm. And and I, I I because I grew up homeschooled and fundamentalist and kind of in a bubble, right? I mm-hmm. I'm kind of like in this tension where I'm like, how do I raise my son to mm-hmm. not be ignorant? Uh, and, and and not culturally relevant and not afraid of the world, right? Mm-hmm. But also, how do we live a life that is not poor, meaning, okay, on Christmas he gets, you know, a glass of water, right? But no, I mean, he had stuff, but also we were practicing this this very real and I think necessary idea of, of, of doing our best not to participate in the consumeristic yeah. culture that is yeah. is killing people across, uh, uh, you know, across the ocean, et cetera, you know, essentially. How do you – how have you thought about that when it comes to raising kids? Oh, that's great. It's such a good question. I felt that especially I have a daughter and thinking about her uh, seeing how bodies are portrayed on television yeah, uh, and knowing that it's like inevitable that she will be given uh, – that she will have some sort of toxic relation to her body that she'll have to work out. Yeah. over time that that thought really saddens me mm-hmm. um, uh, but but I do think it is a um it it's a delusion to think that you can protect your child from that culture it, it's more like you have to give them the resources to resist it I think they're going to get it one way or another that the uh <laughs> whether it be consumerism or uh, you know, body hatred, you, you, they're, they're going to absorb it. And so how do you help them work it out of themselves? How do you help them redeem themselves from, uh, from what they're being given and absorbing? I, cause I don't think you can protect them from it because, uh, you know, protecting them from it then creates, uh, smaller cultures, which then have their own sicknesses, which they will then have to work themselves out. <laughs> and then of, we're all right? deconstructing you know? before you know. Exactly. Exactly. So, so no, I think it has to do more. And, and thinking about um, consumerism and, and like buying things for your children, um, I, I think um, for me, a lot of times, um, buying something for my child is a lot of times for me a lack of imagination or care that mm. I that I'm taking for them so like it, it is more thinking about what could I do to make them feel loved and cared for uh and appreciated and feel like they do have uh, a happy child and a happy life with, right. without as much participating in, in this culture of, oh, just buy them something and they'll get a quick fix of feeling happy. Um, so it, it does come down to more of daily care. Uh, mm. And I think about this as well to make a connection to something we were talking about earlier. Like yeah. uh, it, it seems so easy and it is too easy to just say, you need to go to a farmer's market instead of buying from the grocery store. Like that, <laughs> that is too easy. Right. But, <laughs> What I want to say is we need to be attentive to all of the disciplines that go into going to the farmer's market instead of going to the grocery store, right? Mm. There's this whole regime of discipline and care that you need to practice to actually use the farmer's market well. You really have to devote time to planning ahead. Yeah. You have to not spend as much money in other areas of your life because it costs a heck of a lot <laughs> more money to, to buy it. Right. Uh, and... and um, 
I think, and you have to, you know, actually cook it, which takes time as well, right? Right, so, right. so there are all these disciplines that go into, it's a daily, the, the daily acts of care that go into resistance. Um, it, it's mm. not some grand uh, negation of, you know, selling everything and you leaving your family or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Like, that's not going to help anybody. I don't, <laughs> right, but, but like right. this, this discipline practice of care for what's around you. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where we need to go. And it does involve, um, it does involve a certain embrace of poverty, uh, a, a certain obedience. I don't know if it involves chastity necessarily, but but it certainly involves kind of this uh, res- resistance to a culture of comfort in a way, because mm. it is uh, it is more difficult to do this labor. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, and it takes forethought and it takes daily care and action to do it. And I certainly am not uh, perfect at this. And, and I'm someone who's gotten on to a CSA and gotten off and like has uh, wasted some of the goods that I was given when I didn't plan enough ahead, when I didn't mm. exercise enough care. Um, and so that's uh, I recognize that I'm not like a horrible person for doing that, right? right. But, but that's how I want to grow as a Christian right. as a person is to become more caring of what's around me. And I think the same for my children and gift giving and uh, and thinking about different different ways to to do that. So uh, it could be like one thing that my daughter loves is that we have this random mailbox in our backyard uh, that. I don't know why it's there. It was there when we moved in. We don't actually get mail there, but there's a mailbox in the backyard. But she just loves it if she opens it and there's a note in there for her. Right, mm, right, <laughs> so right, like right. What, and, and that would just take me five seconds in the morning to write a little note and put it in the mailbox. And like, so so I think, yeah, what um, it, in, instead of like taking her to Target or something like that, uh, what are those daily acts of care that I could, that I could do? Hmm. Um, so that, that would leave them, you know, just as rich in the end and pr- probably much more so than, right, uh, right. than this other way of living. Yeah. Hmm. So. That's really helpful. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people, including myself, we have young kids, we're thinking about how do we raise them not to be a fundamentalist or, or, <laughs> or how to think that, 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 that the only world is, white evangelicalism and then one day you wake up like oh my god you know this all happened but mm-hmm. you know but how do we do this faithfully while also not like you said kind of over sheltering our kids obviously we have to be parents we have to make certain decisions but like you said at some point they're going to get a sting of the culture right they're mm-hmm. going to have some of that baggage so what tools do they, do they have and i i find it interesting because you kind of hinted at you know um how there's there is some level of poverty and just you know that 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 living simply idea it, it reminded me of james cone in in the uh, black power and, and black theology where he says that like you know for allies to be allies sometimes sometimes, sometimes you have to get the sting of oppression to understand what's actually happening you know mm-hmm. it's like you have to put yourself in the position in between where the machine and, and the ground meet you know mm-hmm. and, and feel the weight of some mm-hmm. of those decisions i'm like yeah you know it's challenging for me to think about that um mm-hmm. but also like I have to like I in order for me to be a true ally or someone who wants to help make the world a better place be a, a touch of heaven on earth we have to put ourselves in situations that are really uncomfortable where 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 we taste like you said the reality of the world not just the and no pun intended but just that n- not just the whitewashed experience right of just everything is good there's no problem right. everything is great yeah yeah I, I think that's very well put in that that sort of um, thinking that everything is great or simplification of sin yes. to being like sexual sin is the only sin right. you think about, right? Don't curse, like, you know? That's, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, it's such an impoverished way of viewing it. And, and um, if you view sin in that impoverished way, then maybe you can achieve perfection, right? Maybe you can, uh, you know, right. not lust this week or something right. like Maybe it's right. possible. Right. But when sin becomes about like how am I inserted into a structure of oppression within my society, there's <laughs> right. no escaping that sin. You right. Know, there's, there's only pro- further progress that you can hope to make in renouncing it, and that's yeah. that's something that you just can't you can't achieve perfection in this life. Like yeah. you will constantly be learning more and 
and attempting to join others more as you as you spoke about before in the action because you're aware that you know my own little life doesn't really matter that much when it comes to these larger structures right. so trying right. to join more people and so there's always there's always more and that shouldn't make you feel shame it should just make you realistic about this life yeah. and welcoming of forgiveness yes know? right repentance uh, so, is a gift right we yes, take it as a gift yeah. to, to do better so i love yes, that yes yes exactly yeah yeah. Awesome. Well, um, Tom, I appreciate you coming on, uh, you know, and making the time. The book is called Kierkegaard and the New Nationalism: A Contemporary Reinterpretation of the Attack Upon Christendom by Tom Millay. Did I say it correctly this time? Yes, oh, I yes. Did. You okay, did. cool. Yes, you did. And one thing I want to say as well for everyone who can't see Tom's face, Tom has smiled the entire time. Which I really appreciate. You're maybe the happiest guest I ever had on, especially <laughs> considering we're talking about poverty and renouncing yes. the world. So yes, I appreciate yes. the energy. It's always good to have that. And where can people find you? Are are you on on social media? Like, do you have yeah. a website, etc.? I am on Twitter, uh, <laughs> of course. And it's uh, Tom <laughs> underscore Malay, M I L L A Y. And uh, I have like an academia. You know, that's like the academic Facebook. I've got one of those, so you can just enter my Wait, name. Wait, I'm sorry. There, there's one? It's called Academia? Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> it's a Facebook for academics? Yeah, yeah. It, you, like, post your CV and papers there, and yeah, yeah. Oh, I would love to see the comments under some of these, some of these topics and how all these academics are, like, you know, with their big fancy words and, like, destroying yeah. each other, but real simply, you know? <laughs> Very subtly, that's right. Yes, exactly, like, real subvertly, you know? Like, yeah, that book was pretty good. I'll give it to my, you know, kindergartner later. Anyway, you know, it's like, oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did. So, well, they, anyway, okay, it's good to know. Yeah. That, that's where you can find me. And then there's some people you need to find too. So I'm, have you ever, uh, have you talked or seen about Malcolm Foley yet? I don't know. He's a fellow no. Baylor person. You definitely should try to get a hold of Malcolm. He's writing, he, uh, or no, he just finished. I follow his Twitter. He just finished his dissertation and it's a history of lynching and uh, black oh. pastors response to it in early America. He's at Baylor, just a fascinating guy. Um, and there's also a guy at Baylor, Jonathan Tran, T-R-A-N, uh, who just wrote a book called Asian Americans in the Spirit of Capitalism. Amazing. Okay. So uh, just a couple of Baylor shout outs. Like you have to get those folks on. I'll work on it, man. <laughs> and they're both familiar with the evangelical context, especially Tran uh, is familiar with uh, with this. So you I should just, do it. I just finished the book, um, The Bible Told Them So by J. Russell huh? Hawkins. It's like a yeah. real you know, easy to digestible read, but my goodness, I mean, the content is not easy to, to digest, but the, you know, the yeah. wording is, and yeah. I feel like every time I read a book like that, that exposes more American history than where I'm like, Kierkegaard, I'm, I'm throwing away everything. The, the, the <laughs> empire is totally rotten, you know, yeah. like yeah. burn the yeah. church, you know, so. Christendom has made Christianity impossible. Yes, exactly. I might tell the podcast that. <laughs> All right, listen, Tom, again, I, I appreciate you coming on. I'm sure we'll do it again. So be well and thanks again. Thank you, Tim. You know, you don't have to put off fixing plumbing problems in your home anymore. I mean, you could just ignore that clogged drain or visit meflow.com to take care of your plumbing problems. MEFlow, license 271-001-2450.